Our Father and our God, we have so much to be grateful for that you would even bother with us after all that we have done to you. And yet you love us with an everlasting love. And you have given us the most wonderful gift you could give so that we might experience the fullness of life. Lord, only you know the strength of the enemy and how ruthless he is. And I thank you for being willing to become as one of us, made like your brethren and your sisters in every way. And I thank you for holding firm to the faith so that the enemy has been defeated. I ask that you would take your word and break it to each one of us according to our needs. You know us individually. And Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and instructive as we share together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to begin with two God-inspired statements, and I want to see what conclusions we can draw from them. You're familiar with the first one at least, John 10.10. The thief does not come except to what? To steal and to kill and to? How many of you want that thief to come? No, none of those things are very positive in my book. But I have come, Jesus says, that they may have what? What kind of life? Abundant life. There may be some of us here today that it's been a long time since we've had abundant life. We've existed, we've gone day by day, but this abundant life that Jesus is talking about is something that I'm interested in. How about you? And he came for that very reason. We were designed by our Creator to experience an abundant life filled with purpose. You ever wonder what your purpose is? Filled with meaning, with hope, with joy, with peace, all of those things that make up the abundant life. Even though that was our design, when sin entered this world, it kind of changed everything, didn't it? The entrance of sin brought misery, heartache, despair, death, hopelessness, all of these things. Just because of what? Yeah, but let's define that sin. I mean, to bring that much horrible stuff, it must have been a huge sin, right? What was it? What was it that brought all that? Eating a piece of fruit. Now, come on, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big is eating a piece of fruit? If it's the fruit that you were told by God not to eat, how big is it? You know, here's something we need to understand. There is no such thing as a small sin. 
Now, there are sins about small things, but no such thing as a small sin. Let me illustrate it. Those of you who are parents and had toddlers, you can identify with this. You know, little Johnny, he's about four or five, and, and he gets angry, and, and he picks up a book, and, and, and in his anger, he says, he just throws it down on the floor. Now, in light of all the problems in the world, how big is that? No. <laughs> Not very much. And dad says, Johnny, that's not appropriate. Would you please pick up the book? And he does this. I ain't going to do it. Now are we dealing with a big thing? No such thing as a little sin. There's sins about little things, but every sin is a huge issue because it's a rebellion against dad. And if we read the Bible correctly... That's not a small issue. We need to understand that because how many times have we said, oh, this is just a little thing, right? Jesus came into the world as one of us, made like us in every way, tempted in every point, just as we are tempted. That ought to encourage you so much, yet without sin. And He came so that we could have at least the option of an abundant life. He came so that we shall know what? The truth. And what will truth do for us? Now, this is such a familiar verse, we skip right over it. But this is a valuable verse. The question that we need to ask ourselves is... How badly do we want to know the truth? How many of you like the truth? How many of you always like the truth? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. But if we want that abundant life, what must we have? What must we also want? And the truth can be painful at times, can't it? But it's only the truth that will set us free. And yet, even though that's why Jesus came, and we have the truth, we have the Word, we can quote a lot of it, yet for many of us, even as Christians, life seems to be more filled with guilt, fear, anger, emptiness, than joy, peace, and hope. Right? Something's missing. And we're all on a search constant search sometimes to find meaning in life. We look for it in so many places, pleasure, wealth, things, you name it, relationships, all of these things looking for some meaning. Life must have meaning. But in the end, all of these things do what? Leave us just as empty and unsatisfied as before. So we turn to the promises of the Bible. How many of you have done that in the moments of despair? I hope you do, but if we're going to be honest, and I'm, I'm in this crowd as well, how often we turn to the promises of the Bible and they only seem to mock us. You experience that? They don't work for me, they work for others. And we marvel at all the wonderful stories we hear and of people and the books that have been written, and we say, I wish I could have that. 
and it doesn't come. The fear, the anxiety, the emptiness remains. And so what we often do, and what I did for many years in my own life, I settled down with a form of godliness without knowing the power of godliness in my life. I did all the right things for all the wrong reasons, hoping at least that that would get me an entrance just inside the, the pearly gates. I didn't have to walk the golden streets, but just get me inside. That's a pretty empty spot to be. Now for our second statement. This comes from the little devotional book, My Life Today, from uh, the writings of Ellen White. The true principles of psychology are found where? What principles of psychology? Well, that's that. We could stop right there and we could have quite a discussion, couldn't we? The true principles of psychology are found where? Friends, how many of the founding fathers of psychology were Christians? Let me know if you find one. And yet, where do we go? Whose theories? The true principles are found in the Bible. And then I list three things I want you to notice there. That's all part of the quote. Man knows not his own value. Number two, he acts according to his unconverted temperament of character. Because what? Because he does not look unto Jesus, both the author and the finisher. Somebody ought to get excited about that. How many of you have tried to be the author of your faith and hope that the Lord would finish it? How many of you have let the Lord author your faith and then you say, I think I can take it from here? I love this verse of this passage because he is both the what? The author and the finisher of our faith. He who comes to Jesus, he who believes on him and makes him what? His example realizes the meaning of the words, to them gave he what? Power for what? Power to at least make it through by the skin of your teeth one more day. Power to become what? Sons and daughters of God. Isn't that an incredible statement? Now, according to this statement, who are best suited to help others with personal problems? Somebody that knows the Holy Scripture. Every church ought to be a community counseling center, and every member ought to be a counselor. And the world would be much better if that were the case, and most of the other counseling centers were shut down. Now, there's wonderful people in counseling centers, and I'm not against all counselors. But if this statement is true, who is best suited to help people find answers to personal problems? A Christian counselor who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Scriptures. Why? Why are they best suited? Because they 
Because the true principles of psychology are found where? In the scriptures. That's right. The information we have in the Bible concerning the nature of man and the source of all our problems is really quite impressive. This statement summarizes our three basic problems. Right there we're highlighted. We don't know our value. We act according to our unconverted temperament of character. And we don't look to Jesus as both the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, to understand how we got into this situation, we need to go back to the very beginning and the way God designed us. And let's go back to, first, or to Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. And here we find what we were designed for. And I know this is so basic, but, you know, I think it was Cornflakes some years back had an advertisement that I really like. He said, taste them again for the first time. Don't you like that? That's pretty clever. And some of these passages are so familiar, we need to taste them again for the first time. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, how? Sad, depressed, anxious, worrying. No, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And because it's such a familiar passage, it's easy for us to miss something of great importance in this passage. There is a first in this passage. A first. For the first time, a change in creation story. Anyone notice what that is? What's that? Us. Yeah, well, he made uses of the animals, male and female, and, but he made humans, yes. Okay, he's, they were there. It is the first, but let's look a little deeper. On day one, notice what God does. Day one, he created, right? And how did he do it? He spoke, and after the thing existed, what did he say? And it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And the second day, God said, he spoke, and the thing existed, and he said what? It is very good. And evening and morning the second day, and that went on the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day. But this is the sixth day. What changes? He formed him. He didn't speak us into existence, but he formed man. And then he said, it is very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. No, here's, here's a first. Here's a first. The, the pattern, the rhythm is interrupted. 
And God does something with Adam and Eve that he has not done with any of the rest of his creation. He talks to them. He talks to them. Now, why does he talk to us and not the trees and the grass and the animals and the birds and the, and the fish? I know, but have you ever had a dog? They know what you say when you talk to them, right? There is something significant here, friends. When God does something different, we should ask ourselves, why? Why did God talk to Adam and Eve? Because they were designed differently than the rest of creation. God knew that even though they were perfect people living in a perfect relationship with himself, they could not figure out life on their own. They could not figure out life on their own. They were created. We were created to be dependent. God had to explain to them who they were. You're in charge. He had to explain to them what they were to do, care for the garden, dress it, keep it. He didn't say any of that to anything else, did he? Not that's recorded. He had to tell them how to live in order to experience all that they were created to be. Don't miss the significance of that. What made us different from the rest of creation that we needed God to talk to us? Now, this is before sin. This is fresh from the hand of the Creator. What made us different? We had a choice and free will. Ah, we had free will. Yes, I'm going to list you three of them. We were created for fellowship with God. And as such, we were given communication skills that no other creature was given. These abilities were not given primarily to encourage human relationships. They were given so we could know and understand God, our Creator. Only as we properly understand God can we properly relate to each other and the rest of creation. True or false? So it begins with understanding God. Only then can I get along with the rest of you. I mean, I'm all right, but I'm not sure about some of you. <laughs> gotta, I've got to hedge my bet here because who knows what you might do to me, right? And I might get hurt. Now, this, this is significant. The second thing, we were created to be interpreters. We were given the marvelous ability to think and to reason. We take in information about life all around us. And then what do we do with that information? We interpret it, right? We run it through all our filters, and, and we live according to our interpretation of those facts. But just like Adam and Eve, we're dependent upon God's Word to accurately interpret our world. 
we can't figure it out on our own, right? Anyone got this world figured out on their own? Nope, good. We're all in good, co well, company anyway, whether it's good or not. When we say God designed human beings to be interpreters, we're getting at the heart of why human beings do what they do. Our thinking conditions our emotions, right? Our thinking conditions our sense of identity. Our thinking conditions our view of others. Our thinking conditions our agenda for solving life's challenges. We were created to be interpreters. That's why we need a framework that will help us arrive at a valid interpretation so we can respond to life appropriately. And only the words of our Creator can give us the proper framework. Did you hear that? Only the words of who can give us the proper framework? Creator. I'm a pastor, so I can say this. It's not only the words of your pastor. It's not the words of your parents. It's the words of who? The Creator. The Creator that give us a proper interpretation of life. So make sure your pastor, your parents, your teacher, whoever it may be, is filled with the words of God in their instruction. Does that make sense? Number three, we were created to be worshipers. Worship is not just something we do. Worship defines who we are. This is, this is really the, the motivational core of our being. We were created to worship and we are driven to worship something or someone. All humans, all of us are worshipers. The difference between us is a matter of who we worship. This statement, I want you to just put in your mind. Some central love commands our allegiance and directs our behavior. Some central love, singular, singular, commands our allegiance and drives our behavior. Now we're getting close to the root of all our problems, aren't we? Or all our solutions. What is that central love that drives us? For Adam and Eve, everything in their life revolved around God. His presence, His purpose, His revealed will. We don't know how long they lived in the Garden of Eden before they listened to the voice of another counselor. According to Usher's chronology of the scriptures, he estimates anywhere from 30 to 60 years. So it could have been a while. We often think of it in a matter of a few weeks, right? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. And you think, well, 60, they're getting kind of old. Nah, skip that. I mean, Methuselah lived, lived how long? 900. I mean, they were just teenagers still after 60 years. So they could have been there for a while. 
And as long as their lives revolved around their creator, there was nothing that marred their joy and their peace. The emotions that we experience so much today, guilt, anxiety, depression, anger, lust, self-centeredness, all of that was foreign to Adam and Eve. They didn't know anything about those until the entrance of another voice, another counselor, was heard in the garden. And here's what that counselor said. We're familiar with this, but again, don't miss the deeper meaning. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat from every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing what? Good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was it? Was everything God made very good? Okay, was the tree, the fruit, good for food? Absolutely. It says that she saw that it was good for food, so she must... The only way she could have done that is if she would have... Did God make poisonous fruit? Yeah. Probably not. It was all good, but he just said, arbitrarily, to let them know they weren't the owners, only the managers, that tree is mine. Where is that tree of life now? It's in heaven. That tree of life that came out of the Garden of Eden... Was God's special tree that he had designed for them? The other tree, the forbidden tree he had created? I suggest probably nothing wrong with the fruit except that God said, don't do it. Don't eat it. But she saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Now, I want you to notice the content of the serpent's counsel here to Adam and Eve. He takes the same set of facts that God has given to them, right? The two trees. And he gives them a different interpretation. Eve stands in one of the most important moments in the history of the universe. She stands at the very place where you and I stand almost daily, if not daily. You can almost feel the breathless silence of the universe as it waits to see how Eve is going to respond to this new interpretation. Will she follow the counsel of the Creator or the counsel of the serpent? To whom will she entrust her life? Where will she seek to find her meaning and purpose? What will she believe about God, His character, 
and his plan now that she's faced with this new interpretation. The drama recorded, I mean, these are the questions that the universe is, is watching to see how they'll be answered. This drama recorded in Genesis 3 gets to the very core of human existence because, friends, Satan is not just selling Eve some fruit from the best tree in the garden. That's not what it's all about. He's selling her something more fundamentally appealing than just a new flavor of fruit. What's he selling her? She is selling her, he is selling her, telling her that if she eats that fruit, she will be independently wise. How was she created? To be dependent upon God and His counsel. How many of you like to be dependent? How many of you prefer independence? Oh, weak. How many of you aren't telling me the truth? <laughs> we love our independence, don't we? Don't you tell me what to do. I mean, that's why I'm 18 now, Mom, Dad. He's selling her the idea of being independent. He's saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't need God to tell you how to live your life. What he's basically saying is, however beautiful God's revelation is, it's not really necessary, for you can rely on your own ability to think, to interpret, to understand, and to apply what you see. You don't need to be dependent upon God. You can handle life on your own. Isn't that the core of our problem right there? This was the attraction that led to the fall, and it's the same attraction that leads us to our falls every time, every time. To follow the counsel of the serpent, we have to do two things, only two. This isn't a hard lesson, just two. Number one, we have to deny God and His revelation of Himself as our Creator and Counselor. Deny that He is the one who defines our identity and purpose. That's the first thing we have to do if we're going to follow the counsel of the serpent. The second thing is we have to deny our own nature, how we were designed to live and function. That's a pretty profound thought. Let it sink in. When Satan comes tempting you, not with some forbidden fruit, but with the option of being independent, think through these two things you have to do before you can give heed to the serpent. I have to deny God, and I have to deny my very existence, my purpose, my own nature. And then ask yourself, do I want to try that? So write these down in the halls of your mind, these two, these two points. What Satan offers is, a, is, is uh, as an credible option is really no option at all when we look at what we have to do, is it? No option at all. Adam and Eve were created for a certain kind of existence, the same existence that you and I are created for, and that is what? 
What were you created for? Oneness with the Creator. That's right. They could not live successfully outside of that design, and friends, yet this is what they were about to try, and what millions of us have tried since then. Does it work? No. Does anyone here have a story they'd like to share with us of, of at least one example of where it does work? It doesn't. What were the results of this attempt to live independent of God and come up with our own interpretation, to find our own meaning and purpose in life somewhere else other than at the feet of the Creator? What, what were the results? The primary result was a fundamental shift in the very nature of man, which led to a fundamental shift in how we interpret life. Romans chapter 1, 21 to 25 points this out. It puts it this way. Although they knew God, they did not what? They didn't glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile where? And their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools, and they exchanged the truth of God for what? And they worshipped and served created things, the creature, rather than the creator who is forever blessed. That pretty much summarizes it, doesn't it? They had a perfect character before the fall, they yes. They were motivated by love. They were. And when they fell, the opposite of love is selfishness. And they became motivated by selfishness. Did they know that? No. So we really couldn't blame them, could we, if they didn't know? Did they know that? No, but what did they know? They knew that they came from the hands of the Creator, not this other counselor in the garden. Right? And yet, friends, here's the sad part. Jesus came that we might have life and have it how? And we know that, and we know what Adam and Eve, that's opposite of love, as you've just explained, is self-centeredness. What is it that holds us here? Why do we keep going back to that self-centeredness. And don't tell me it's just because we're human. There's a more fundamental reason, isn't it? Some central love controls our worship. Paul, Paul said there's another law in my remembrance. There's another law. Yes. But thanks be to God <laughs> who gives us the victory, right? Rebellion is the inborn tendency to give in to three lies. Autonomy, I have the right to do what I want when I want to do it. Number two, self-sufficiency, I have everything I need in myself so I don't need to depend on or submit to anyone else. Number three, Self-focus. I am the center of my world. It's right for me to live for myself and do only what brings me happiness. That's what 
rebellion brings. Those three lies, autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-focus. These are the three lies of the garden. They're the same lies that Satan has whispered in generation after generation in willing ears. How much many more lies has he added to those three over the centuries? How many? And if you boil them all down, they're all those three. Autonomy, self-sufficiency, self focus Are you guys getting excited? You only have to remember two things as warning if you want to rebel against God. You only have to remember three lies. This is easier than you thought, right? It's not that hard. The Bible calls it the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh, lust of the uh, pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. You're right. These three lies lead us to think of ourselves first. Climb over any God-given barriers between ourselves and our desires because we want control. We want to make up the rules. We want to be able to change them whenever it suits us. Essentially, we like Satan's interpretation of life, that we can be like God, knowing good and evil for ourselves. We are capable of ruling our world according to our own desires. Now, I want to tell you something right here in terms of counseling. We... Um, all have been in churches or currently in churches, and you know the pattern. Somebody's in church, and then you begin to notice they're not there quite as often, right? And you start reaching out to them, and, and, and they have all these excuses, right? What do you know is going on at that point? They're listening to another counselor, right? And understanding this lesson will help you be able to get to the root of their issue. Now, they may not like you telling them. They may not like the implication. But at least they will know how or where they are and where they're headed and how to come back. But this is the issue. Don't buy into anything else. They'll tell you all kinds of excuses. Well, I've been sick for a while. And, you know, I'm just... And, we, you know, that new preacher that we got. I just can't identify with him as well. And on and on and on they go. No, it's these three. One of these three or, or all of them. These three lies deny our basic design as human beings. We were not created to be autonomous. We were designed to live in submission to God, to live for His glory, to reflect His image, and to live outside of that design will never work. Look at all the problems that came into the garden after Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the other counselor. You find all of those in Genesis 3. Rebellion against authority, self-seeking, guilt, fear, shame, cover-up, pride, hiding, blame-shifting. It's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. Men have been blaming the women all along. The woman says, it's not my fault. It's a serpent that you created. Blaming it back on God. We have breakdown in communication and an orientation. This is the shift of the nature, nature there you were mentioning. An orientation toward desire and feeling instead of obedience to God's Word. And I'm not going to make any apologies for that word obedience. I know that's supposed to be a dirty word and it's legalistic, but that's what we were designed for. And to try to live outside of that is never going to work. 
We'll come back to that a little later. You may say, well, Pastor, yeah, I, I understand all that in Genesis 3. That was back then in the garden. But the conflicts that I'm dealing with today, they're not about some forbidden fruit in a garden. That's true, but the issues are the same. The only thing that's changed is the fruit. The issues are the same. As noted earlier, we're, we were, by design, creatures of worship. If we will not worship the Creator, we will worship what else? Romans 1, 21. The creature. The creature, whether it's us or whether it's other, others. And this change in the motivational core of our lives from the worship of God to the worship of self is the root of all personal problems. Let me say something that may sound simplistic. This may be the part that some of you will, will not like me anymore, but that's okay. I want you to wrestle with it and see if it holds true. There are only three sources of personal problems. How many? You know, friends, we haven't even up, used up all the fingers on one hand yet, have we? This is a one-handed job. Two things to know if we want to rebel against God. Three lies, three sources of personal problems. Number one is personal sin. Living outside of God's design for us. We don't often see this as a cause of our problems because we're interpreting life according to our perspective rather than God's. But according to the Bible here, God tells us how many things work together for good? How many is all? You're serious. How many of you have had things in your life, happen in your life, that should never have happened to you? What does that scripture say? What does it say? All things what? How many of you have had things happen in your life that should never have happened to you? You want to read that verse again? I'm aware. I've been a pastor for 32, 33 years. There's not much that would surprise me anymore. But if God's interpretation says all things work together for the good, what does that mean? It all happens for a reason. Even those deepest, darkest moments. God has been there working for what? For the good of those who love Him. The Bible also tells us to rejoice how often? How often is always? Then he gets even more specific. This is not my favorite verse. I've had to wrestle with it too often. In how many things give thanks? In everything give thanks, for this is what? 
doesn't the interpretation of the enemy sound a little easier at this point? Let's be honest. Doesn't it sound easier? You know what I like about this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, 18? Look at it. Who's speaking here? God is. And He tells us to give thanks in what? Doesn't God know that not everything is worth giving thanks for? Doesn't He know that? If He knows that, then why is He telling us to give thanks in everything? Because He's working all things for good. You know what ex excites me, and it changed my whole perspective, and it really helped me in many issues that I've wrestled with. If the Creator God of the universe that knows the end from the beginning, that's all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, if that God tells you to give thanks for everything, what does that mean? It means there is something to be thankful for in what? Everything. I had a lady come to church, Salt Lake City. I was there for about 10 years. Precious, precious gal, just a big heart. Two kids, a boy and a girl, about 8 to 10 or somewhere in there. And um, wanted to be baptized. We studied, was baptized. And one day I got a call. She said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I live 50 miles from the church, and I couldn't drive in at that point. I said, I'll talk to you on the phone, or we can set up an appointment. And she says, I, I, I just I can't get rid of it. And to make a long story short, she had dated a boy in school, junior high, good friends of the family. She came from a home, single mom, and, and didn't fit in very well with others in the school was a little slow, a little different, and um, boyfriend broke up with her, and that was a real heartache, but she was best friends with his two sisters, and one day she wasn't feeling well, and she would often go to their house, wait for her mom to come home, and then walk on over to her house or pick her up at the friend's house, and anyway, one day that boyfriend, after he'd broke up, um, she wasn't feeling well, and so she had gone to their house. And the older sister took the car to pick up mom from work, and he drug her into the bedroom and, and violated her, and then blamed it all on her. And you know what kids are like at that age, junior high, and, you know, they like to paint the story a little different. And the story got around, and she was just, just devastated, couldn't see him, didn't had to change schools, was so fearful of going even out of her house to go into the store, grocery store with her mom for fear that she would see him. And she was telling me all this story. She says, Pastor, I have struggled with this for years. And I, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what have you tried? Well, I, I went to counseling at the school and I said, that didn't work, did it? She said, no. And then I told my counselor that I wanted to meet the boy and tell him that I forgave him. And, and they wondered why. And I said, because I just felt that was the right thing to do. And I said, that didn't work either, did it? And she said, no. She had her own two kids. Was still that year, that 
as an adult living in that same neighborhood, still afraid to go out of her house lest she would run into him. And this was, this was decades later. I said, do you really want freedom? She said, I do. Are you willing to do anything? I, she said, yes. I said, all right, I want you to take out a piece of paper. And I shared with her this verse. And I said, I want you to write on the top 10 things I can thank God for for that event that happened years ago that day. Now listen, you don't say something like that unless you're ready to prime the pump with a few examples. She said, to what? And I said, yeah. I want you to write down 10 things that you are grateful for, lessons that God has taught you, things He has done in your life as a result of that day. Isn't that what that verse is telling us? Let's get, let's get real with it. Isn't that what it says? And she said, I, I can't even think of one. And I said, you have two precious children, a boy and a girl. I said, has that experience years ago made you a more cautious mother with your own children? She said, yes. I said, there's number one. Number two, she had just a compassionate heart. She just oozed compassion for the hurting. I said, you will reach people that I will never be able to reach in all my ministry. I said, has that experience made you more aware of the hurt that other people carry, made you more compassionate person? And she said, yes, it has. I said, there's number two. Now, when you finish the other eight, give me a call and tell me what happened. And it was about four or five days later, she called, and there was a whole other person on the other end of that phone. She said, Pastor, it's gone. It's gone. I said, what's gone? She said, that, that fear, it's gone. I don't care. I, it, it, it just left. And I said, tell me about it. Well, I did what you told me to do. And I started writing down. I said, share those things. And she shared. She had come up with some marvelous things, more than eight you see, when we buy into God's interpretation, it changes our own view, right? And we can take verses like this as hard as it is. And I know some of you are really struggling right now, perhaps. But God has said that. That's His interpretation. No matter what the enemy has thrown at you, He is able to take and turn it for good. And you could be a better person today than you could have before that happened if we accept His interpretation. You'll change your life. It's not my favorite verse because I'll be honest with you, I don't even like to sit down with my piece of paper with one through ten on the side at some of the things. But if I'm going to be honest with Scripture and honest with God, I have to do that, and it has never failed. Never failed. Let me give you one more verse in this line. You know it. James 1.5. Count it what? All what? Oh, well, what's coming? What's following? When you fall into various trials, why should we count them for joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. And patience is to have its perfect work, right? For what purpose? 
that you may be perfect and complete. What's the last part say? Lacking nothing. How many of you here today would like to be in that condition, perfect, complete, and lacking absolutely nothing? And you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? But we don't always like to pursue truth, do we? Because sometimes we fear it will hurt too much. And friends, if James 1, 2 to 4 is what you call hurting, then bring it on. I'll take that kind of hurt. Are you with me? However, if I value a comfortable, easy life more than being perfect and complete in Jesus... I'll be doing far more grumbling than rejoicing when trials come. And this mindset can lead us into all kinds of foolishness and discontent. Do you know how foolish we can get when we grumble instead of rejoice? I'll give you just one example you're familiar with. God sent the bread of heaven. The Bible called that manna what? You remember what it called it? Angels' food. God sent angels' food to His people in the wilderness, and they were so foolish they thought that was a real trial. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? To the Israelites there, it was a trial. Why? Because they were not focusing on the menu of heaven. They were focusing on the menu of Egypt. Personal sin, a major source of the problems in our life. The second one is demonic activity or possession. And I'm not talking about the activity that comes because we deliberately give demons access to our life by listening to demon-inspired music and watching demon-inspired movies and playing demon-inspired video games or other games. That's not what I'm talking about here. That falls in the first category, personal sin. I'm talking about demonic activity comes when all the forces of hell array themselves against us because we are out expanding the kingdom of God. An example of this would be that demon-possessed girl at Philippi who followed Paul and Silas shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. These men are servants of the... Wouldn't that just drive you batty? And Paul finally had enough of it, and he rebuked it. And the Spirit came out of her. Personal sin, demonic activity or possession. And the third one, organic illness. What do I mean by organic illness? Physical or mental problems that can be medically tested and treated. There's an organic, organic cause to it. Now, here's where I want to tread softly, but clearly. Some would like to add a fourth cause, a fourth source of personal problems, and that would be inorganic mental or emotional issues, but I'm going to suggest that that cannot be the case. Because emotional problems are not the cause of personal problems, they are the results of personal problems. 
If a person is struggling with mental issues, they may need to get a complete physical to see if there's any organic cause. Perhaps the thyroid isn't working properly. Perhaps they're suffering from low blood sugar that affects their, their emotions and other things. There may be some chemical imbalance. But if there is, that's an organic illness, right? Something that could be tested and treated. However, if there is nothing physiologically wrong with them, it is not a mental problem that drugs can treat. It's a lifestyle problem. We were designed to have meaning and purpose in life. And this can only be found in that personal, obedient relationship with God. Those who look for meaning apart from that relationship with God and His Word are bound to crash. Jesus told us that in Matthew 7, a very familiar passage. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on what? Now, what does that wise man do? He hears and what? Puts them into practice. There's the obedience. That's right. And when the floods came and the winds blew and the rains beat upon that house, what happened to that house? It stood firm because it was founded on what? The rock of ages cleft for me. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them doesn't like that interpretation, so let's try a different interpretation. What happens when the storm beats against their house? It falls with what? A great crash, right? Those who build their lives on the shifting sands of self and worldly pleasure sooner or later discover that all meaning they sought in life has evaporated. It's gone. King Solomon can tell you all about that. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. And he had all the money, all the money that you and I won't even see in ten lifetimes what he brought in every year just in the gold. He had the wealth, he had the wisdom, he had everything else, and he tried everything to find meaning in life. And what was his conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God, give glory to Him, right? For this is the whole duty of man. It goes right back to Genesis, the purpose we were, we were created for. When I say all activity, I'm talking about all. Let me get specific. Going to work each day, fixing a meal, Doing the dishes, cleaning the house, mowing the lawn, doing your homework, raising a family, running errands, helping a neighbor. The list could go on. All of those things that we think are meaningless interruptions to an otherwise full day that we could have if people would just leave me alone. All activity is important. All activity that God has given us as a responsibility, that's where we should find our meaning in life. But what kind of world do we live in? I've got to get away from the kids. I want to get away from the house. I want to get away from the work. I want to go out and, and just relax and have fun. And it doesn't last very long, does it? It evaporates. 
These are God-given responsibilities that provide an opportunity for me to practice faithfulness in the little things. And he that is faithful in the little things, if you want bigger responsibilities, God has promised to give them to us, but what must we do first? He who has been faithful in the little things, God says what? I can trust you with some bigger things. So perhaps... One of the reasons we're frustrated is because we're not faithful yet in the little things of life, hoping for our big day in the sun to come, and it doesn't come, and we get more and more frustrated. Friends, just start being faithful in what God has given you, and that will grow. Those who build their lives on the shifting sands of self and worldly pleasure... Begin thinking and acting in the short term. They stumble from one unsatisfying experience or relationship to the next, finding no fulfillment, no lasting joy, no peace. And as a result, they become delusioned, depressed, bitter. The short-term solutions which they had depended on are no use in solving the, the uh, problem of ultimate meaning in life. And now they've exhausted all known resources. They've painted themselves in a corner. They're not out of touch with reality. Rather, they are out of resources to deal with reality. They have come to an end of themselves with no place to turn. So they cease functioning because they don't know how to function meaningfully. Such a person is often described as having a nervous breakdown or an emotional breakdown. I want to go on the record here that there's no such thing as a nervous breakdown. If you had a nervous breakdown and I came and I pinched you real hard, what response would I get? See, your nerves are working just fine. Didn't take them long to get that message to the brain and the brain to send it to the mouth to say something. Is that a nervous breakdown? No, it's not. That's a false statement. Nerves don't break down. And if someone comes to you and they look like they've been run over by a Mack truck and just dragging along, and you say, oh, well, what's wrong? Oh, I just have an emotional breakdown. It says, no, you don't, sister. Your emotions are working just fine. Look how sad you are. <laughs> emotions don't break down. It's that we've come to the end of ourselves, our resources. We've painted ourselves in a corner. We don't know how to respond meaningfully. We stop responding. Because we don't know how to do it meaningfully, we've tried to interpret life on our own. Now, I'm not trying to make light of that, friends. I just I want to illustrate it so that it's clear. All true principles of psychology are found where? In the scriptures. Look at two verses that show the stark difference between building on the rock of God's word and building on human desires or feelings. Oh, throw that one up for you. Irresponsible living leads to what? Irrational thinking. That's right. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify God as God. Their thinking became futile. Their thoughts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became what? 
fools. That's right. Look at Isaiah 26.3. You will keep in what? What kind of peace? Perfect peace whose mind has stayed where? On you. Because he trusts in you. We're going to be dealing with that tomorrow. Any worry warts here? Anyone like to worry? It's how to get rid of your worry. That's, that, that gives you a little heads up of where we're going with that one, all right? How long will that perfect peace last? As long as your mind has stayed on Him. That's right. Friends, according to our designer, the only real meaning and purpose in life is found in a loving, trusting relationship with God. I like the way the introduction in the book Desire of Ages says it. How many of you have ever read that intro in the book of Desire? Most of us, at least most people I know, skip right over it. But uh, here it is. In the hearts of all mankind, of whatever race or station in life, there are inexpressible longings for something they do not now possess. How many of us identify with that one? We've had those, right? This longing is implanted in the very constitution of man by who? A merciful God. For what purpose? That man may not be satisfied with his present conditions or attainments, whether bad or good or even better. God desires that the human shall seek the best and find it to the eternal blessing of his soul. But Satan, by wily scheme and craft, has perverted these longings of the human heart. He makes men believe that this, this desire may be satisfied by what? Pleasure, wealth, by ease, by fame, by power. But those who have been thus deceived by him, and how many of them have been? They number myriads. Find all these things pall upon the sense, leaving the soul in what condition? as barren and unsatisfied as before, it is God's design that this longing of the human heart should lead to the one who alone is able to satisfy it. The desire is of him for what purpose? That it may lead to him the fullness and fulfillment of that desire. Let's go back to where we started. The thief comes only to do what? Steal. Steal. Kill and destroy. Jesus came for what purpose? That we can have life and have it more abundantly. <clears throat> Friends, we have just two systems that we can choose. One system has God as its counselor. It interprets life through the lens of God's word and responds accordingly regardless of how we feel, right? The foundation of this system is a trusting obedience to God. The result is an abundant life filled with all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, power, you know, all of that. The other system comes from the devil, the father of lies, and its foundation is what? Follow your heart. You're like God, knowing good and evil. You're a big girl, a big boy. You can choose for yourself. God understands. He loves you anyway. Satan knows the power that comes when we walk in obedience to God. And he does everything he can to keep us off of that path. 
One of his most successful ways is to get us to think that we cannot do something if we don't feel right. And I'm going to close with this little argument or a scenario just to, to put that in perspective. We get the doing and the feeling. How many of you felt that it would be hypocritical for you to do something if you really didn't feel like it? Yeah. All right. So a husband and a wife heading for a divorce. They come to a pastor or a counselor, and, and they say, well, you know, I, I, I guess our marriage, nothing left of it, no love, no feelings, no nothing. And, of course, they hope the pastor will agree that divorce is the best option for them. However, if he is a biblically-oriented pastor rather than a feeling-oriented pastor, he'll say something like this. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you're wanting to get a divorce. I guess you'll need to confess your sin before God and learn how to love one another. And their reaction is going to be one of astonishment. But, they protest, we told you we don't feel anything for each other anymore. I, I, I understand, but that is irrelevant. God says you must love one another. And when you learn to do this, the feeling of love will follow. Love is not a feeling first. It begins with obedient living. Jesus said that where your treasure is, what's the rest of that? There your heart will be also. So when you start treasuring your wife, then your feelings will soon follow. And when you start treasuring your husband, your feelings will soon follow. Well, they say, what do you, what do you mean? You mean we have to try to love each other contrary to all our feelings? Exactly right. Well, wouldn't that be hypocrisy? No, that would be obedience to God who commanded, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, I couldn't love her that way, the husband says. Well, the pastor says, then let's start at a little lower level. God commanded you to love your neighbor as yourself, and she just happens to be your closest neighbor. <laughs> oh, I don't think I could do that either, pastor. All right, let's begin at the lowest level. Christ commanded, love your enemies. You see, there's no escape from God's command to love, even toward an enemy. The two of you must repent of your sin and by the help of God learn to love each other, even if you begin loving as enemies. Well, how can I love my enemy? Well, love is not a feeling first. Love is not getting, but giving. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He loved me. He gave Himself for me. As Christ loved the church, give yourself up for her. And when you learn to give yourself your time, your money, your interest, you'll eventually experience the feeling of love. Well, perhaps, but it still seems hypocritical. No, it's never hypocritical to obey God. You've fallen into the trap of the devil in thinking it is. Every morning, contrary to my feelings, I get up, get dressed, and go to work. Does that make me a hypocrite? <laughs> no, guess not. What would make me a hypocrite? Well, I suppose if you went around bragging that you love to get up in the morning. Precisely. Now, if, as the Scripture commands, you give of yourself in concrete ways to your enemy, when you care for their needs, even though at first you don't feel like it, does that make you a hypocrite? I guess not. What would? If I said I felt like doing it. You're right. So you see, it is not hypocrisy to work at love at all. That's the lie of Satan who wants you to rationalize your desires to not give of yourself to one another and then excuse your failure with the protest that obedience to God without feeling is hypocrisy. I like that. I think it summarizes it pretty well. We also have a song. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. Well, we what? Do His goodwill. 
He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but a smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt, nor a fear, not a sigh, nor a tear can abide while we what? You believe this song? But we never can prove the delights of his love until what? Oh, all on the altar is laid. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows is for those who will trust and obey. Well, that's about it for our time. If you have any questions, I'll stay by as long as anyone wants to stay by and ask some questions. Here's your handouts right here on the corner. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you've challenged us pretty deeply today. And we're just going to be honest, you know our thoughts anyway, it doesn't feel very good. There are some issues that you've picked a scab on and, and perhaps some of us aren't too happy about that. But your word is clear. And I want to thank you for your eternal patience in dealing with us, as stubborn as we've been. And again, Father, I pray that as we go our separate ways that you'll lead us to some quiet little time with you. and. We may need to pull out several sheets of paper and, and start listing 10 things we're thankful for, for things that have happened in our lives. And we don't know where to begin, but your spirit, you have promised to teach us, to give us, to lead us into all truth. And we ask that you would do it because we want to be abundant living Christians, not only for our own life, but so that we can be a witness to others. Thank you, Father for hearing us. Thank you for your glorious word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.